It is summertime in Colorado, and it can get warm here too, right? I keep being amazed at the... Yesterday, I stepped outside in the afternoon. I had been out all morning and hadn't realized what was happening, and then the afternoon I stepped outside again. I was like, wow, that's hot. So it gets warm in Colorado, and there's just a lot of stuff we do in the summertime, and I'm grateful that we get to do all these things. But truly, there are times when I start wondering if my calling isn't to some hermitage in the hills after all. <laughs> I need people, so it's not really true. I really need to be around people, but I also really like being by myself, so I, it's this constant tension of, I, I feel a little bit like a cat who is like, I really need you, I really need you. Would you please pay attention to me? Okay, that's too much, too much. <laughs> That's how, at least that's how our cat works. <laughs> so I feel just a little bit like that myself. <clears throat> All righty. Well, I am grateful to everyone who's helping make our church service happen today and everyone who's helping with music and technology and all of that. It is such a blessing. Today we're looking at Exodus chapter 8. The plague of frogs. That's what we're looking at. <clears throat> so let's read it. Exodus chapter 8, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through 15. It's in verse 1. And so just, this is our second plague. And so up until this point, the Lord has said multiple times that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, but he has not Every time we read about Pharaoh's heart, if you remember one time we read through all of them and it would say Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then at one point, about halfway through it, suddenly says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there's, there's this, this sequence of events that's happening here that's important for us to think about what is going on. Because the Lord says to Moses, I am trying to accomplish something. And... Uh, He's going to accomplish it because if he was just trying to convince Pharaoh, he might do something different than all these plagues. In fact, this, is, this even presents a problem for the modernizing Jewish movement of today where they're looking at, to, to them it seems like Pharaoh was the one who was sinning, but that God was really over the top and impacting everybody for Pharaoh's sin. And so... It's interesting to read different rabbis of more modern times trying to explain why this happened or, or maybe what was going on because they're obviously uncomfortable with the fact that God goes so, just hits all of the Egyptians with this. And so they've actually taken to say, well, think about us when someone else makes a mistake, how that impacts us. And so they, um, even now for the Passover Seder, sometimes they're not just talking about the plagues of here. They're talking about the current plagues and wars and problems and how that impacts everyone. <clears throat> and so I, I thought about that for a while and I thought it is important for us to come to a point where we can be comfortable with the righteous justice of an almighty creator God. If God's actions make us uncomfortable, we're either misunderstanding God, we're misunderstanding us, we're misunderstanding something about the 
the relationship between God and man. And so I think it's probably actually is okay for us to be uncomfortable with the judgment that comes from God and thinking like, whoa, I don't want that. But it doesn't mean that we have to apologize for God or be embarrassed for him. So when we come and we're reading through these, we get a, quite a few opportunities to talk about it and to think about it. But the justice of God in doing what he did, he actually lined it out pretty clearly and said, Moses, I'm going to do these things in order that the people of Egypt would know that there is a God in heaven. So there's a reason why they're involved in this. So reading, that was my little intro, reading Exodus chapter eight, starting in verse one, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the house of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants." So this very specific, I mean, these frogs are coming up into your house, your bedroom, on your bed. Like not just, there's going to be a lot of frogs, but like these frogs are coming for you. They're going to show up in your house, yes, in your bedroom, and on your bed. And so when I think about that, like we brought a frog home from Texas in our RV. The, the, um, the tree frogs were so prolific down there, and one of them hid in something in one of the compartments in our RV. And so Katie and Stacy were out getting it out and they found this tree frog. So guess where the tree frog is now? It's in a little aquarium thing in our house because apparently they make great pets. Not just according to Stacy, but actually according to the internet site that she looked up. So, <clears throat> so apparently these, so she's feeding this. So I, you know, I will think we're ready for bed and I'll see her with a one of those insect nets and she'll be running around outside catching moths and other things to feed her tree frog. And every so often he gets a little bit happy and sings a little song over there and makes some noise. So apparently they make good pets, but I'm thinking about this frog. Like there were so many of them in Texas when we were there. Like I was standing outside, there was a tree right here and I heard a very loud frog sound and he was just hiding right behind a leaf, like right next to my ear. And they were just everywhere. And they didn't seem that concerned about me or my presence. And so I'm thinking about these frogs. These are not necessarily tree frogs. They're coming from the Nile. And as they're coming up, they're just going everywhere. And personally, there are things that I like touching better than I like touching frogs. Now, some folks might want to snuggle with one, but I'm assuming that even for Pharaoh, with his worship of the goddess Hecate and her frog head, that he still, like, what's interesting about the Egyptian gods is they'll often have an animal head, but a human body. And so this goddess Hecate is, supposedly has the frog head and a human body, and she has to do with fertility, with, uh, the goddess of childbirth, a guardian of the dead, but she's also one of the creator gods. They have multiple different creator gods, and depending which town 
or space of Egypt you live in, different gods play more power in what actually happens. And so you have the, the god Ra or Re, the sun god, who goes um, and every night, so this is the way their gods work, every night he is sent into the underworld at sunset, and as he goes through the underworld, he has to fight his way through. And there's other gods and goddesses down there that don't want him to come back. And so he's, every morning is a new victory for their sun god. So on one hand side, you have the very daily victory, the daily success of this god, but you also have the near failure every time of this god. And so it's interesting to think about how they ascribe to their gods various things. And so depending where you lived along the Nile, I think there were at least two, if not three cities in Egypt that were the place where their gods had created the whole earth from. And so there were multiple places in the mythology. What is fascinating now is when you try to go back and research some of this stuff, the current climate on the internet is such that there are many, many other um, religions or just curiosity people who are writing about these things, thinking that there, maybe there is some uh, power in, in these ancient Egyptian gods, and so they're trying to, to bring them back. So you'll, you'll, you can't always just find the history that you're looking for because you'll find someone in current day saying, well, the best time to worship the goddess Hecate is to, and they'll give times and places and ways, and you think, you know, to me it's mind-boggling now, I know that for some of them, they claim, oh, well, it's just as ancient as your God. And so they try to, to make it sound as if it would be just as reasonable to serve this goddess as it is to serve our God. But here's the, the issue with it is that according to all of these accounts, our God is basically heckling and making fun of their God right here in, 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 the, in Exodus. And so if you're going to give a true history and accounting of the gods, you have to take into account the creator God who overcomes the other gods. Now, I didn't want to spend too much time digging into the gods and exactly how they worshiped them and what all they did. But what happens is with the frog god, you will, there's also, and this is for those of you um, that you might have run into this, but a couple of years ago when Trump was running for president, the first time around, there was Peppy the Frog, and then, uh, and it was, I don't know if it was on Reddit or where it was, but it became this whole, like, almost cult following of, of Trump supporters that had Peppy the Frog, their voice speaks per, spokesperson for them, and then they discovered um, there were enough similarities and things that they, this frog's name <coughs> is Keck, is what they discovered. So this is their discovery, right? So in there's an ancient frog statue from Egypt. The hieroglyphics of it look like there's someone sitting at a computer keyboard saying things, right? That's the hieroglyphics. So they took that meaning that now their Pepe the Frog was this, and they called him Keck, um, which was, so there's just a lot of, this, um, this is a complete side story here, but I'm showing something. Um, so in ancient Egypt, you have Hecate, the frog god, and they're worshiping frogs. And so today, there is, a, uh, <clears throat> there is a tendency to take things like that, to either appropriate them, appropriate them for ourselves, to make fun of them, to somehow, so they were both appropriating it, 
kind of making fun of it, but there seems to have been an element of real actual people who thought that maybe this frog god would help Trump win, right? And so there was this, this huge, enough so, and because the frog goddess, whenever she's down in, or not the frog goddess, the, the, the other frog god, when he's down in the underworld, um, then there is a serpent goddess that is trying to stop him from doing whatever he's doing. So they immediately said, well, there's Clinton. She's the serpent goddess. There's Trump. He's our frog god. And so they went all places with this, right? So I'm, I'm pointing this out for a point that is not primary to the message of today, but I thought it was worth saying is that when we look at humanity, the way that humanity operates hasn't changed that much. People say things like, I can't believe that in 2022, um, it, we're, uh, you know, whatever they're, and they're, they'll say something, like whether it's, um, it's, I've heard recently, they can't believe that in 2022, we would regress to the point of not killing our babies um, in abortion. But th there is also a, a, a thought out there that they think, people think we're too sophisticated and too far advanced as humans to have another world war. And I'm telling you, we're still human. We are fully capable of descending into a world war very quickly, where many different factions and people are all embroiled. We're not safe by means of time to make us somehow more sanctif sanctified or more holy and to make us more so sophisticated to the point that we won't do those things. And they will point out to things like how there are countries now that don't have guns and they'll go through all of these other things and they'll be like, look, you know, in the olden days, if there would have been Brexit, that would have been a bloody war and so on and so forth. And so I just wanted to make sure that we understand that when we're talking about these Egyptians and this Pharaoh and this Moses and this uh, these Israelites that are here, we're not talking about a people group that was somehow less developed or less intelligent than we are. They had less technology, but in many, many ways, they were, to us, if someone with their skill set showed up in our midst, we would say, wow, you have a lot of skills. You are able to do so much. And so these people of ancient Egypt and the Israelites that were there, they're not some subhuman. It's not like we're homo sapiens and they were homo almost sapiens. And this is, the, this is the lie that comes from evolution where we're developing further and further and further. But when you look at history and you see what they were doing and what they were calculating and what they were accomplishing with, the, with, the, with what they had, they are human like you and me. And you could take one of them and drop them into our modern society and after they got over the shock of everything, they could adapt and live with us. They could learn our languages. They could learn how to use computers and smartphones and all of those things, and they would. If we just took someone and dropped, in the same way that if you took one of us and dropped us back into ancient Egypt, we would pretty quickly learn what we must do so we don't, so we don't get whipped so we, don't, we would learn how to run their culture because we'd be there and we're human and we would connect with them. And so, so it's, it's a mistake to think that Egypt and the Exodus is so far away and that, that these poor people are just there and they're just, you know, they, the people of Egypt have the same opportunity as Pharaoh 
to hear about the God of the creator God from the Israelites and to actually respond to that God. And so when God is bringing a judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians, he is within his realm of justice upon the whole earth where he's able to say, all of you, you have been in the presence, what we would say the gospel, and you've rejected it. So let me show you who your gods really are. And so if you think about a, a little frog, whether it's an an omelet that you hang on your face, uh, or, or your face. Omelets go in your face, omelets go around your neck, okay. <laughs> so, so, so whether it's a, a statue that you have in your house, whether it's something you're hanging on a chain, whether it's something that's being carved on the sarcophagus of a mummy, whatever it is, there's a lot of frogs in ancient Egypt. And they have some sort of power that is ascribed to them by the people. And so you have the Egyptians who they worship some 2,000 different gods depending where, if you count them all together at the same time. Now, I'm assuming that with the rolling of the seasons and the changing of governments that there would probably be a dozen or so that would be the, the peak gods or goddesses at any time that not everybody was trying to keep track of 2,000 but there was at least 2,000 that we've discovered. Now, sometimes I think that we are finding from the ancient period and then the, more, the newer uh, time frame in Egypt, we're finding the same God with slightly different names and stuff, and so we're splitting them into two, when in reality, it's just the way, if you look at Greek mythology and the way it develops with time, I think that the Egyptian mythology did the same thing, where it, it developed some, and so you might have a God that you would name by one name here, but, but a couple, um, hundred thousand, or a couple hundred years or a couple thousand years later, it might have a different name, still be the same root God. And so sometimes you'll find in Egyptian mythology a goddess who has a frog head, and sometimes you'll find a god who has a frog head. Um, but this is, the, this is this frog that's here. And so now we have these people who are used to worshiping the frog. And then at the word of Moses, the man of God, the frogs, and, and they usually come out at a certain time of year, is when the frogs come up out of the Nile. And so they're used to that, and so there's rituals and things attendant to that. But now, at the command of Moses, and Aaron putting out his rod, suddenly the frogs come. And they come in great mass. And they come into everyone's houses, into their bedrooms, everywhere they're going. These frogs are everywhere. It says, so let's continue reading. So this is now Exodus 8. Verse five, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers and over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Now this next verse to me is, is a little bit of an astonishment and a conundrum. Verse seven says, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. So this is my, this was my, as I was considering this, I'm seeing frogs everywhere. There's frogs in the inner chambers, there's frogs outside, there's frogs in the trees, there's frogs everywhere. Everywhere you go, frogs, frogs, frogs. You pull your suit coat out of the closet you haven't worn in 
five years and there's frogs in it. Everywhere you go, there's frogs. You just, you go into the pantry to get out your favorite dessert and, you, in, and there's frogs in it. And everywhere you go, there's frogs. As you're cooking the soup for supper, frogs hop in it. You're just having frog soup. Everything is frogs. And there's frogs everywhere. And so now, this is what Aaron does. Frogs come up, they cover the land. And as these frogs are covering the land, Pharaoh says to his magicians, show me, can you do this? Okay, so tell me, how do you clear the area of frogs well enough to be sure that the magicians aren't just cleverly hiding a few frogs through their sleeves and then revealing them? And so this to me was a conundrum because there are some things, like next week when we get to the lice, now, there's something that the magicians were, um, we can't do this. This is from God. I'm like, how, how not? And I think how not is it's a frog you can hide up your sleeve or wherever, and you can sling it out there. See, there's a frog. But a lice won't jump for you in that manner. It'll stay where it's warm. And so, so there's, a, there's a problem that they had with the lice where they were like, this is too difficult. So I, when I'm looking at the, 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 the time of the water turning to blood, I can see that they would actually pronounce some demonic spell and get water turning to blood. I can see that happening, right? With the frogs, that is a potential. However, the thing with the devil's power is he doesn't create. He only corrupts. So he will take something that is one form and change it, but he, has, he does not have the ability to create out of thin air something new. So he can deceive us, he can lie to us, he can take something and corrupt it, but he doesn't have the creative power of God from my understanding of scripture. And so when it comes to the frogs, I feel as if the, the magicians were not creating frogs. They were merely sleight of hand frogs. And it wasn't that hard because you just had to sweep the area of frogs really quickly, say your spell really fast, and boom, the frogs were back. I don't know. I, I just, I mean, and, and someone might have more clarity on this whole thing than I do, but like, this is my thought on it. It's like, they, how do you clear enough to be like, and then like, were there frogs, like if they were creating frogs, were there frogs materially different from the frogs that Aaron had brought on the land? Like, could you tell? So this is a magician frog, and this is an Aaron frog. Like, could you tell that? Or was it just the same ones? And so this to me was a bit of a perplexity how it could be. And, and, and furthering uh, my suspicions about the magicians and their frogs is the fact that Moses, I mean that Pharaoh is not, that Pharaoh is not uh, hardening his heart right away. So you go to verse eight. So in verse seven, the magicians did the same with their enchantments. And then in verse eight, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So because of the way verse 7 and verse 8 are right next to each other, it almost seems to me that Pharaoh is looking at the magicians going, Really? Okay, get Moses. I've got to get rid of these somehow. This is, is that, that somehow to Pharaoh, Pharaoh it seems somewhat convinced that this is a real problem. Now, take, keep in mind that when I'm talking about exactly what happened with these things, this is purely my speculation. I don't know, and historically, we don't have more of a record. I would have loved it if Moses would have had a more detailed scribe on some of these issues and belabored some of these points. Who knows? Maybe we wouldn't believe it if it was too detailed. But here, here it just moves along, and so Pharaoh calls for Moses. 
So in verse nine, Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying, when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. Now, something's happening here. Pharaoh calls for Moses. Moses says, I want to give you the honor of telling me when. When do you want the frogs to stop? That's fascinating. But then he says, and, and when you ask for this, then um, the frogs will, the, to destroy the frogs from your land and your houses, they will remain in the river only. So now Pharaoh is sitting here, and I'm imagining that as he's sitting there talking to Moses, he's having to swat frogs off his face as they keep jumping around. I don't know again. I don't know how thick they were, but this is just me imagining it. Like, he's trying to eat grapes. He pulls up a grape. It's a frog. He gets another one. Okay. And so, so like, this is, um, this is what I'm imagining, is he's just being pestered by frogs, and he can't not be pestered by them. He's just tired of them. He calls from Moses. Moses comes up. He says, please, go pray to your God and get rid of these things for me. Moses, I want to honor you as the king of this land, when would you want for this to happen? Now, put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes for a minute. If the frogs are being enough of a problem that you're willing to humble yourself and call for Moses to come and ask Moses to remove these frogs, and Moses says, so let me honor you. Tell me, when would you want me to do this? What would you say? Because I think I would say, this moment, let's do it now. Let's get him out of here. And Pharaoh sits there, swats a few more frogs off of his face and says, tomorrow. It says it right here, uh, verse 10. So Exodus 8, verse 10. So he said, tomorrow. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So Moses says, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 11. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people, they shall remain in the river only. Verse 12, then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And so Pharaoh's heart, uh, hardening of his heart is now happening after the relief. And you will see this um, earlier. Um, it had seemed that as soon as the, the magicians had done this, the snakes, um, that Pharaoh's heart grew hard, even after Aaron's uh, was rotted, had eaten their snakes. So, um, so we're, we're looking at this condition where Pharaoh is hardening his heart. But think for a moment about the frog. If the image of the frog is holy, and if the image of the frog is sacred to the Egyptian, if they see in the image of the frog, um, in fact, for so long has the image of the frog been seen as new life and the, the picture of redemption because every cycle of the year when we come back around, more frogs come out of the rivers. And so they're, they're a, they're a uh, from a creationist point of view, they are a an annual reminder that the seasons of the earth will continue as long as the earth stands. Because God gave us that promise back after the flood, saying that as long as the earth will stand, there will be sunshine, uh, springtime and harvest, um, and I am messing up the quote, but basically this is going to continue 
the cold and the heat, this, the seasons will continue. And so the frog, every time in the, in the year when he comes back up, this is a, a symbol of the faithfulness of God. So much so that when Christianity came to Egypt, much, much after this incident, when Christianity came to Egypt, the Egyptian Christians, what we would now call the Coptic Christians, but we were the early ones of the Egyptian Christians, they would often, as a sign of hope and, and encouragement to each other, draw a little frog at the end of their correspondence to each other. Because the frog was, you know how we might have um, certain flowers that we represent Easter and the resurrection? Well, the frog was that to the Egyptian culture. It's, it's a new life. And so, so it's fascinating that the frog itself carried enough of that that even some of the Egyptians, Christians later, um, adopted it as part of their culture, saying the frog is an evidence of the newness of life that we have in Christ. So now someone will say that is, um, well, pagans will claim that as Christians trying to appropriate one of their gods, and, 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 and some Christians will claim that that's paganism taking over Christianity. So that's a whole other discussion. But it is a, the, the frog itself is the symbol of life and renewal. And so I think about this because later in the wilderness, we have this moment where the children of Israel say, we need food, we're dying, why don't you feed us? And then the quail come up on the land and there's so many of them and then they're overflowing and so they're literally eating quail and eating quail and, 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 and God judges them because of their greed in the middle of them eating all that quail. And so I was thinking about this is if you're worshiping the frog God and you think it's a beautiful thing, and then one day there are so many frogs in your house that you can't handle it all. And then a couple days later, they all die. And there's a stench of dead frogs and you're having to move frogs around. In your mind, once this has happened to you, so think of this generation of little Egyptian boys and girls growing up. And forever after, when they see the picture of a frog, Will they have kind and good thoughts to their frog goddess? Or will they remember the stench? Because I think what God is doing is saying, I want you, when you see your gods and your Egyptian gods, I want you to remember that there is a God that's bigger than these gods. And so God is at work doing something. And I, I think it, as we read through these, it is important for us to recognize that God is wanting to show the Egyptians about the, this, not just, not just show the um, Pharaoh or Moses or the Israelites, but he wants all the people of Egypt to know that there is a God in heaven and to know that there's a creator God in heaven. And so part of what we're seeing here is that as the Egyptians have different accounts of what is happening uh, with their gods and goddesses and, and how this all works. <clears throat> In reality, God, the creator God, has the power, has the authority, has the ability to do this. Okay, so now let's go back though and look at this moment when Pharaoh is sitting there swatting frogs and Moses says to him, uh, please accept the honor of saying when I will intercede for you. When do you want this to happen? And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And I, you know, for us looking at Pharaoh, we were like, why didn't you say today? Why don't you say today? Why would you say tomorrow? And so I began contemplating in my own life, 
when I say today versus when I say tomorrow. Because there, it's easy enough if I'm looking at a difficult job and I'm like, you know what, I'd rather not do that today. I'd rather, I'll do that tomorrow. Now, what's fascinating and a little gagging about this is that um, we have a, a, an idiom in our, in our language where we talk about swallowing frogs. And it comes from a quote, and I don't remember who made the quote, but basically says that if in the morning you swallow a frog first thing, you won't have to do anything harder the rest, than that the rest of the day. So the little booklet that I think Stacy's dad gave us, a little book, is just called Swallow That Frog. And so the idea is that when you're looking at your tasks and everything you have to do throughout the week, and you have something that's big and hairy and nasty, you're like, well, there's the frog, and you keep putting it off, and you keep putting it off, and you keep putting it off. Well, a lot of, occasionally, you'll get a lot of other stuff done, but most of the time, it just immobilizes you because you're not getting the main thing done. You gotta get this done to get, but you keep delaying it, and you keep pushing it off. At least that's what I will sometimes do. And so if I'll just get up in the morning and swallow the frog first thing, it'll be out of the way. I won't have to do anything worse than that the rest of the day. And so I, I was thinking about that, like, okay, so there is something here, except it's so different. Pharaoh was like, I'm willing to live with frogs for one more day, which I guess is what we're doing when we are de delaying something. We're like, I'm willing to have this frog hop around here and bug me and plague me for another day. I won't get rid of it yet. There is something there, I think, of a, we can think about that just on a practical level, but then there is a spiritual truth that's here that I think is very important to note. Because Pharaoh is interacting directly with Moses and with God, Mo the God of Moses. And when the God of Moses comes to us and speaks to us, this is like the parable of Jesus when he says, won't a man who has an army of 10,000, if someone else comes against him with an army of 20,000, won't that man sit down and calculate first whether or not he has enough so he's trying to figure out, do I have what it takes to overcome this God with 20,000, this king? And when he decides that he can't do it, he sends out to the other king and asks for conditions of peace. And then God, and then Jesus says that the, and the, and the conditions of peace for him is that we must leave everything and follow him. We must deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. And so we find this context where Jesus is sort of comparing himself comparing us and himself where he has an army of 20,000, we have an army of 10,000. Now in reality, it's not, those aren't even the numbers that we're dealing with. When a human being comes before God, God has the infinite power and we have very limited power. We actually don't have much, we don't have much authority beyond what happens to us today. We have one set of, we have a decision-making process that has been given to us for today that we can make a decision today. We can't make a decision yesterday. We can't make a decision tomorrow. We can sometimes make a decision today that goes into effect tomorrow, but we can never make a decision today that goes into effect yesterday, even though legally sometimes we'll write up papers that say this law takes effect starting last week just because of whatever we're trying to do, right? And so, but there is, we have so little jurisdiction, and then we have God who has all the jurisdictions of all the times, of all the places, and everything belongs to him. 
And so it's not a 10,000 and 20,000. It's a, it's usually more like, you know, here I am, I am one, and there is God, he is infinite, and who am I to think that I might come and, and somehow overtake the great infinite God? Well, I can't. And so Pharaoh is sitting on his throne, and it is true that he has armies. It is true that he has magicians. It is true that he has a lot of things going for him. But here comes Moses representing God, and it is this picture of the two armies meeting. And if Pharaoh counts the cost correctly, he would realize on day one and say, you know what? I do not have what it takes to go against this God. What are the terms of surrender? But he doesn't do that. He hardens his heart. And, and the God of Moses says, I'm going to make sure that he hardens his heart until all of Egypt knows that Pharaoh in all of his power, in his supposed deity himself, and how he, and everything he does, he does not have power he does not have authority. He cannot just stop me in my tracks. I'm going to continue these plagues until he is utterly broken. And then, at that point, if he still hardens himself, we're going to drown him in the Red Sea. And so this is where Egyptians are watching Pharaoh go up against the God of Moses. And, when, and so I just want to take a moment to think about this because there is a scripture. Let's go over to Psalms 95. And in Psalm 95, we're going to start in verse 6. But Psalm 95, this is something that's quoted in the New Testament. It's something that we quote a lot in, um, I think, specifically in times of like revival meetings and such. And it's a good one to think about. So the whole psalm is a, a, like a call to worship and obedience. And I want to pick it up in verse 6. So Psalm 95, verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's go back and look at that verse seven. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. And so, this, today, if you will hear his voice, if you go to Hebrews 3, you will find the writer of Hebrews expounds on this passage and talks about this. And I think it's good for us to realize this. In Psalm 95, the author is looking back and saying, do you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they didn't believe God? They basically came up to the moment to go into the land of Canaan and while they didn't use these exact words, it was as if Joshua came to the children of Israel and said, well, let me give you the honor 
of deciding, do we go in now or another time? What time? And they don't say it in exactly the same language of Pharaoh who says tomorrow, but they, they basically are like, not now. We don't want to go into the, the promised land now. And so as a result, you have two men, Joshua and Caleb, saying, yes, we can. We can do it right now. Our God is with us now. Today, our God is with us. Let's go. And they would have made plans and could have been able to enter the promised land with the help of God. But the people said, no, not today. And this is really important for us because they are looking back to this moment. But back in Exodus 8, when Pharaoh is saying, not today, well, we'll do it tomorrow, he is hardening his heart and he is not hearing the word of the Lord. He's not understanding who God is. And to me, this is, I believe, a foreshadowing of, to the Israelites of where they will find themselves a little bit later. When the God of heaven sends a message to you, it is best to be in the position of someone like Mary who says, according to your word, let this be to me and just rolls with it. It is one of the reasons why Mary has such a high position of faith in the church is because she literally heard the word of the Lord, responded in obedience to it. She did not doubt. She wasn't struck mute like Zechariah. She, she just said, according to your word, let it be to me. And so this is the place where Pharaoh would have been good to if he would have done the same thing. It's a place where the children of Israel would have been good. If the children of Israel would have said, well, well Joshua, uh, if they would have said, what do you think? Should we do this thing? That would have been a good position to be, to say, what does God want us to do? But they didn't ask that. They just simply said, no, we, don't, we can't do this. And so I, I find in ourselves that there is a, a tendency to want to push things off to tomorrow. So there are decisions that I need to make. There are disciplines that I need to have in my life. There are relationships that I need to be working on, and it is much easier to say, you know what, I'm going to do that tomorrow. And occasionally, as you're praying to God, he might give you a word to say, wait, wait. Don't do anything in your own strength, just wait. God might tell you this. But when it comes to seeking the Lord and asking God for his direction, don't wait for tomorrow. When God says, when, when, the, when the word comes to us and you're saying, when do you want to start the word of God interacting with you? You don't wait for tomorrow. When Moses says, okay, so Pharaoh says, Moses, please go and pray to God for me. When do you want me to pray? Uh, maybe tomorrow. No, the answer is today, right now. Turn my palace into a house of prayer. We're going to seek your God. We're going to seek your king, your, your Lord and Savior. We're going to follow him. Egypt follows the God of Moses. No, that's not the answer that they gave, but that would have been the proper answer. And that is the answer that we want to give. As for me and my house, starting today, we're going to follow Jesus. Starting today, we're going to serve the Lord. Starting today, we're going to deny the flesh and we're going to take up our cross and follow Christ today. Today, really, this concept of today is a declaration of God's mercy. Because God doesn't say, oh, you missed the window. The window was June 4th through 6th, uh, 1987, and you missed it. Or, you know, last year. Or it's coming next year. He doesn't leave us in between two windows of opportunity. He says, today, 
if you will hear his voice. Today, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Today, if you will hear his voice, at this point, do it now. Submit to him now. Draw near to God now. And so the call to worship, you know, we don't have to wait for a Sunday. It is good if we come here together on a Sunday and we worship our creator and we surrender to him and we say, Lord, you are our God and we surrender to him in that moment. If you think about Lamentations, where it says, um, in Lamentations 3, where it says your mercies are new every morning, that is, that is today. The Lord's mercies are today. They are this day. They're not tomorrow. They're not yesterday. They're today. The mercies are available now. If you think of the Lord's prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. A life of faith and love for God is lived today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but today. And if you think about it, you cannot deny yourself tomorrow. You can only deny yourself right now in the moment. To take up the cross of Christ, you do that today. We must act in the moment. We must, as believers, live our faith today. There's always going to be opportunity to say, you know what, that's a good point. I'll get back around to that later. And to kick it down the road and to wait until a different time. As the king said to the apostle Paul, um, if there's a good opportunity time later on, maybe I'll think about this again. But he missed the today part. And so this is important for us. And so as simple as it seems that Pharaoh would put it off till tomorrow, I, I still, I think it's staggering. If the frogs are so bad that he's willing to call Moses, then that's a big enough sign to say there's a problem in my land that my gods cannot take care of. I need the help of your God because I need you to pray for this. If it's that serious, we should do it today. And so for us, there are things in our life that are beyond our control. There are things in our life that we actually already know that is something we need to be doing. And we can either wait for a more opportune time to pretend, potentially circle back around and hear this again, or we can learn this lesson that God shows us. And it's amazing to me that the psalmist looks back and writes about it. The writer of Hebrews looks back and writes about it. And for 2,000 years, the church has been saying to people, oh, that you would fully believe today and that you would follow Christ today. Don't wait, but let's follow him today. And so this has become God, this has become a, a message of the creator God is that he is a God of now. He is a God of the present. He is not just a God who did things long ago in other people's lives. He is a God that is active and alive today in our life, in every believer's life. So if there is a need, we need to pray today. If there is something in my life that we're not surrendering, we need to surrender today. We can do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your faithfulness is great, and that every day, afresh and anew, you call us to walk with you, to submit to you, to be yours. And Lord, I thank you that you give us these little examples 
tucked in throughout scripture that talk about your faithfulness and who you are. Because you're a good God. And you give good gifts to your children, but you call us, and your conditions of your call are complete and utter surrender. And so we come to you, Lord. We want to leave all of our magicians' tricks and devices behind. And we want to just draw near to you. You are the creator, God. We belong to you. And we draw near to you today. And we ask, Lord, that today you would give us our daily bread. And that today we'd be able to walk with you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.